Yeah, so so we were, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of these assessments in this course are um, sort of broad, open-ended, you know, pick a topic that you're interested in and use it as a way to demonstrate that you were paying some attention in class and, and did the readings. Everyone has a dream, and some people's dreams take them to extraordinary places. David Simon is one of those people. Tune in every quarter to learn how a 50-something lawyer from the U.S. navigates the ancient world of Oxford College in pursuit of an MBA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with David Simon for A Yank at Oxford, where we're exploring David's exploration of getting an MBA at the, uh, at, in Oxford. So, David, first of all, uh, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Good to be with you. So, David, uh, you've now completed, I believe, two of your five courses, Analytics and Leadership Fundamentals. And so today I wanted to maybe focus on a couple of areas you have focused on over the last, uh, I don't know if term or quarter or module is the right way to phrase it, but firms and markets and government and uh, governance and ethics, because you've taken a look at those uh, looking at at ourselves, at legal firms, at lawyers. And I thought that was uh, not only inspired, but something that uh, would make a great topic, particularly around both areas of decision-making processes and uh, market market disruption and what it might mean for the future. So uh, with that, what did you uh, tell us about your leadership fundamentals and um, how that ended up for you? I know you took what we would call a test, but they call an assessment. What was your sort of final thoughts on right. that? Yeah, so so we were, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of these assessments in this course are um, you know, sort of broad, open-ended, you know, pick a topic that you're interested in and use it as a way to demonstrate that you were paying some attention in class and, and did the readings. It's very, it's very open-ended, which I guess for 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 me is good you know it drives the engineer types in the in the class crazy because there's like no right answers and no no clear direction but but our leadership fundamentals class and, and it was a you know we we actually took this course over you know two three different modules actually i think i mean it was it was extended over time and um covered a lot of territory um um and basically they asked us to pick something that you know a leadership challenge that we you know, experienced in our in our careers, and you know, apply some of the frameworks from the course to to address the challenge and and propose a solution. So, I picked um, sort of part law firm partner, lawyer partner decision making as my my leadership challenge, and I kind of focused in on two two areas. One was how we typically you know, build and manage an engagement team um, on, a, on a particular matter, which I think is um, frankly not very good um, how we do it. I think there's room for improvement. And then the second piece was how we make decisions um, in terms of making recommendations to our clients. And we talked a little bit about this, I think, in our last podcast, um, you know, this notion of, on the decision-making piece, this notion of you know, sort of slowing things down, um, avoiding bias, cognitive bias that sort of affects how we typically make uh, recommendations. So I, I kind of delved deeply into both of those topics and proposed um, 
proposed some 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 different ways of approaching it. It was really interesting. It was a good it was a good exercise for me to kind of pull together what we had learned and and focus in on um, you know on on the material. So David, uh, in my uh, private practice before I went into the corporate world, I was a trial lawyer and uh, pretty early in my career, moved uh, to the first chair, I would say five years into my career. And from there on for the next 20 years, I was the, the guy. And the guy had two really functions. One was to manage the litigation up to the point of trial. Sometimes if it was a smaller case, I'd do it myself. As cases got bigger, I got a bigger team working under me. And then at trial, to be the point person, um, to be the advocate at trial. And so um, in that process, uh, it was really managing the discovery as much as anything. Uh, typically, I knew uh, you had a pretty good idea of what the facts were. They weren't uh, something that you had to uncover too much. You tried to use discovery to uh, shade facts uh, in your way. And I was almost always on the defense side, so I was very lucky because if things were bad, well, I just settled the case. And... Uh, no harm, no foul. And uh, that's what defense lawyers do, and that's why insurance companies exist, and that's why corporations uh, have large litigation departments. But I wanted to maybe ask you about your professional practice. I know you're a white-collar defense lawyer, um, but uh, have you had some trials or uh, arbitrations or other hearings in front of regulatory bodies, or was it uh, a different type of practice? So I was wondering if you might explain that process uh, if it differs from really my experience as a trial lawyer. Yeah, so I mean, so I actually started on on that same path, Tom, when I when I began my career as a kind of a commercial litigator, and I have had experience, you know, in trials and in arbitration hearings. I I kind of pivoted, um, you know, reasonably early before I before I became a partner, into more of the investigation white collar defense, government enforcement defense practice. Um, and, you know, part of that representing corporations meant, um, you know, tr trial work was, was a lot less of a critical component of what we did. It was more, um, more we, we do more of the sort of figuring out the facts through an internal investigation, assessing the exposure, and then, and then more often than not managing um, that risk with the regulators. So dealing with, um, you know, dealing with um, uh, regulators in terms of, um, in terms of, you know, defending, I mean, in a sense, in an adversarial kind of position, defending the company. Um, but I think a lot of the, you know, the way we manage investigations or trial work or really any matter as, as lawyers, there, there's a lot of things that we do in common. I mean, I think um, in terms of putting teams together, we're like I said before. I think we're really not very good about good at it. I don't think we're very thoughtful uh, about the teams we put together and the roles different people play and the roles that are required. I think our normal, you know, our normal on an investigation, and this is probably true for for you in a trial too, right? You just you sort of default to this reflexive, like, okay, well, it's a big investigation or a big case, so we need you know, a lead partner, and then we're going to need a second chair uh, partner, and then, you know, probably a mid-level associate and a paralegal or, what you know, whatever. We, 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 think about, we think about position more than role, 
we don't spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, for this matter, what are the client's objectives? What, what, do, what do we need to put together in terms of a, a service delivery team that will, um, you know, that will help us fulfill the client's objectives? So that, that, I think, is an area really ripe for improvement um, in, in, in law firms. Um, and I don't know, maybe I can just, I don't know, I don't want to just ramble on, Tom, but I could talk a little bit about sort of the way we, the, the way I sort of proposed dealing with it um, uh, in, in, my, in my paper. Um, you know, there's, there's some pretty good research on this in terms of team member roles, and there's this framework by a guy named Belden um, where he, he talks about nine different roles of, in, a, in a functioning team, and it's you know, goes from, you know, the person who keeps time and makes sure you stay on track to, you know, the expert in the subject matter um, to, you know, someone who brings in the resources, um, you know, from the firm and externally to make sure things get accomplished that need to be accomplished on schedule. Um, so there are all these different roles. And I, you know, I think normally in a law firm, I don't know what your experience has been, but mine, you know, the, the lead partner ends up playing most of the roles uh, of those key nine roles and and frankly isn't very well suited for most of them. Um, so what what I'm proposing um, in my paper and just sort of the way I'm thinking about this is you know let's 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 stop uh, at the beginning, think about the engagement, think about what roles are needed. think about who you know from your firm or outside your firm could fulfill those roles um, and and really, Build the team around what's required, rather than you know, sort of what position people have in the law firm. That's that's a lot of what what I sort of thought about and wrote about in my in my uh, assessment. So in reading that, it it really brought back a lot of memories for me about being uh, in a law firm, a managing partner of a law firm, on the management committee of law firms. Uh, but it really bled over into uh, your second paper or the second topic which was firms and markets assessment. So I wanted to see if maybe we could tie those two together. But before we do, could you tell us what your assignment was and what you delivered uh, on that module? Yeah, so, so it was sort of similarly vague. Um, and, you know, it was sort of a, you know, show us that you, show us that you learned something in the class kind of, kind of an assignment. But we were, what we were asked to do is to pick an industry and do essentially uh, like a market analysis of the industry and then propose a disruption strat like a disruptive entry strategy um, into the industry. So that was that was basically the assignment I chose. Um, I sort of defined the market as, you know, large U.S. law firms, um, you know, principally domestic. I, I, I sort of carved out the really big global players that have offices everywhere, focusing in on U.S.-based uh, clients representing, you know, essentially the Fortune 500. That was my, that was my market. So in terms of the market, uh, I guess the thing, the other thing that struck me, because I've been thinking about this a lot, is it seems like to me the market is ripe for disruption. There could be other types of legal service delivery vehicles uh, we have seen some in the United Kingdom, for instance, allows non-lawyer investment in law firms. Some of the big four accounting firms have developed legal, legal I'd call them a legal practice, although they can't practice law. 
uh, but legal advice, I guess, um, or business advice through a legal lens. I'm not sure what they call it. And then there are firms, uh, consulting firms in uh, the compliance space that are populated by many of them uh, by uh, lawyers, but they are not practicing because corporations can't practice law. Um, did you either know that the, this market was ripe for disruption or sense that from your research? Yeah, I, I mean, I think so. Um, I mean, it's it's really interesting because, you know, as I think most people know, the the, the, the market that I've sort of defined is incredibly unconcentrated, right? I think the, I think the biggest, um, there's, a lot, there's not really great data out there on this, but um, I think the market share of probably the largest firm in our market is like one and a half percent. You know, the, the, the top five firms don't even add up to 5% of the market. So it's super unconcentrated, but... Um, it it still operates a little bit like an oligopoly, um, and I think that's largely a function of the regulatory in, environment you just mentioned, right? So, um, I mean, there are obviously massive barriers to entry. Um, you know, the most fundamental, the most fundamental one being just being you know being required to pass a bar and be admitted to a bar uh, in order to practice, right? That's a that's a barrier to entry. The lot the ownership rules that restrict non-lawyer ownership of law firms is a barrier to entry. And then, you know, conflicts rules, you know, really pre- pre- prevent serious concentration in the industry. So it's a it's an odd industry that is, um, I, I think the, 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 the regulatory barriers to entry are probably the defining characteristic of it. Um, so, you know, art, that's all artificial, right? So I do think it's absolutely uh, ripe for disruption, um, that disruption, I think, depends on some regulatory reforms or challenges, successful challenges to the regulatory uh, structure. And, you know, I think a big one is this non-lawyer ownership that you mentioned. Um, there have been some some moves in some states to, um, to loosen up those rules. And I think that could have a real significant change if that, if that, you know, that kind of moves forward as a as a more of a, a an opening um you know having sort of private equity ownership and this is sort of where i spent a lot of my um time in terms of outlining um a, a disruption strategy is sort of a private equity owned law firm where um you know it would be um there'd be more and more more investment in uh, technology, more focus on process, more ability to price the services creatively, um, probably lower comp. I think I think high lawyer comp, high partner comp um, is is a, a, a big um, a big part of what makes the market ripe for disruption. I think there's a demand for you know from talented lawyers, maybe for different roles in law firms that aren't partner. Uh, partner type roles that would pay, maybe pay less, but make up, make up for that lower pay and other benefits. So I think there's something there. I mean, you know, it, it really depends on, like I said, the regulatory uh, environment being loosened. I, I suspect it's coming. I also expect that the, the state bars and the, you know, the existing um, structure will fight back hard. Um, this is, you know, to the extent there's going to be change, it's going to, it's going to be sort of like Uber, um, 
you know, fighting the taxi uh, industry, there will be substantial pushback. And any firm that, that is trying to really disrupt is going to have to be prepared to, to, to fight pretty hard. So now let me see, David, if I could tie these two strands together, because I think in many ways the structure within a law firm is almost the same as when I started nearly 40 years ago. And you articulated it, senior partner, junior partner, senior associate, junior associate, paralegal, legal clerk, maybe even a secretary or librarian stuck in there if it's a big enough project as well. And we've got that uh, internal structure inhibiting some of efficient decision-making process that you've articulated in your paper and you've been studying. But it's overlaid with an industry that uh, is not, um, or I should say, well, certainly not prone <laughs> to new ideas or innovation, but largely because of the regulatory structure. There's really no way for a disruptor to come in at this point unless you're just another group of lawyers and then you're just another firm. And uh, you've got all those characteristics that we've talked about. So, um, and, and then the, we're still kind of stuck with, if not the uh, reality, the mentality of partnership compensation, which is based upon the amount of money you bring in and generate for the firm all the way down that pyramid. So we have an outmoded compensation structure. We have an outmoded decision-making structure, but we're in an industry that because of the regulatory structure and high barriers to entry, we really can't come in with uh, a new uh, disruption. So uh, it, I wanted to see if maybe you could tie those together in a way that I haven't been able to. Is there a way, I don't want to say blow the whole thing up, but is there a way to make some innovative inroads uh, within what we currently have? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point, Tom. And obviously I am... Uh... I continue to be a partner in a big law firm, so um, you know the the power of the status quo is is great. Um, and and look, I mean, I think I, one thing we didn't mention in this that I think ties these things together as well is just the the hourly billing um, aspect, right? Like I'm talking about, you know, trying to build out teams that include perspectives. Um, you know, for instance, like a, a voice of the client who might be a different lawyer. Um, on a, on a matter in in my kinds of um, cases where there's a government regulator involved, I, I think it would be very valuable to always have on your team the voice of the regulator. So some, maybe a different person, someone who brings that perspective. Um, and you know, pretty soon when you add that up with you know the project assistant and the voice of the client and the voice of the regulator and someone to you know focus on the documents and a forensic specialist. Right. I mean, if each of these people are billing on an hourly basis um, uh, for the matter, it gets really expensive and, and, and the client um, is going to going to, you know, flinch, I think, at, at the cost. So I think part of doing this better and doing it right is also getting rid of hourly billing and, and billing on a kind of value project based, um, you know, sort of approach. Now, that's also something, you know, we've been talking about. For 25 years, the sort of inevitable—it's inevitable that we're going to move to you know away from hourly billing and into project billing—and we don't. Um, I do think some of that is driven by the dynamics of you know the industry again, how we pay partners, how we compensate associates. I mean, associate pay is entirely 
justified internally by number of hours billed by hourly rates. And we see that as, you know, kind of a revenue uh, as the revenue number. And we can we can tolerate very high costs given that internal logic. Um, so I, I, I think that all kind of contributes to this this problem. Um, to answer your question, I, I don't I don't know that there's a, a simple easy solution. I, I keep thinking that as the cost of legal services goes up and up and up, that clients will eventually demand something different. Um, and I think there is, um, you know, th there is a prospect of some regulatory reform um, that may be responsive to clients demanding something different. I mean, Typically, you know, the, the debate and where, where, where folks have had, I think, some success arguing for um, regulatory change is in, ac you know, access to legal services. But, but you know, nobody's particularly worried about the Fortune 500's <laughs> access to legal services. It's more the individual level and different kind of law firm. So, but, but I do think, um, and we've chatted about this before, right, there's a lot of interest in this industry, I think there's a fair amount of venture capital and private equity money that is looking for opportunities to disrupt this industry. And I think I think finding you know a slightly open door, um, particularly around ownership of law firms, and 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 using that as kind of a base to um, to, to to try something very different is is a real a, a real potential. We'll see in the next three or four years. That's my, that's my best guess. We probably should move on because we could probably geek out on this for another 30 minutes, but I will end with just this morning, I had a conversation with a client who I had bid on a project basis. And they said, oh, no, 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 we want an hourly so we can control it. And I was like, you know what I was told in 1983? You control the time. I control, or you control the amount, but I control the time. And guess what? Uh, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. But um, yeah, we learned about moral moral hazards in our firms and firms and markets as well. That's a it's a good example of one. Well, let's move on to uh, govern governance and ethics because I know you really enjoyed this uh, module. Why don't you tell us about it? Why you enjoyed it so much, and maybe a couple of highlights. Yeah, so I mean, it was a it was a really great class, and it actually um, it really brought home for me why I chose Oxford. Um, you know, it it was it was extremely theoretical. So we started the the course with, you know, what what is ethics? You know, <laughs> and we talked about Bentham and utilitarianism and Kant and virtue ethics and we we really kind of built from the very you know the, the very foundation um you know what what it you know we talk about ethics and we talk about our codes of ethics all the time you know this course actually really focused on what you know what does it mean to be ethical in a business context and it was really interesting really interesting discussions you know obviously for for me as a lawyer and a you know political theory undergrad this stuff was like right in my wheelhouse um the thing that really struck me, though, was how um, much my classmates really loved it and were engaged and enjoyed it. And it just struck me like I didn't 
you wouldn't expect that from a group of MBAs, um, you know, to be as as captivated by some of these like deep, you know, deep ethical and moral reasoning um, discussions as they were. And it really it kind of brought home to me why yeah, I, I think Oxford brings together kind of a different sort of cohort of student. And, and it was really, um, really rewarding to, to see not only to, to get an opportunity to dig into that stuff, but to see my classmates digging into it and enjoying it and, and engaging with it. So that was really great. Um, it was really great. I, I think, uh, you know, we, we, we did a, a more in-depth discussion of this issue in, in our, um, our, our podcast on your ESG um, network. Um, but one of the things that I really found interesting is the sort of the subject of governance and how, um, you know, how we go from ethics and, um, you know, sort of a, a sense of what the corporation uh, says to the world it is and stands for and is about. We call that the meta contract. My professor, um, uh, Alan Morrison, and his um, research fellow, Rita Moda, have sort of developed this concept of this meta contract here's this is who we are what we stand for what we believe as an organization these are our promises to the world um to me the governance piece then that where it's really interesting is how do you take that and and implement it um and execute it and and more importantly when you're a massive you know multinational presence with tens of thousands of employees located all over the world how do you how do you ensure that that ethos of your meta contract gets translated into you know behavior consistent with that day to day um, hour to hour you know country by country employee by employee all around the world so to me that's super interesting um, you know there's a lot of what we do on the compliance side Tom um, you and I have you know spend a lot of time thinking about how do we number one how do we create a culture where people buy into it and understand what our values are, but then how do we, um, how do we create procedures and processes and controls um, to make sure that the organization as an organization acts consistently um, with, with its um, meta contract as it moves forward. So those are some of the things that really um, kind of struck me and, and worked for me. You wrote about um, the Center for Corporate Reputation, and uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, so this is something I discovered, which is really, um, again, right in my wheelhouse and, and of great interest to me, that o Oxford and the Said Business School has this um, Center for Corporate Rep Re uh, Reputation, and, it, and it's a, a research um, institute focused on, you know, as the name would suggest, on corporate reputation, how, how organizations develop a reputation, um, you know, how they deal with threats to it, what can undermine um, their reputation, how it can be rebuilt after, say, a crisis or something that, that, that undermines it. Um, so really interesting, um, interesting work. A lot of research, some teaching. They sponsor a bunch of you know events and conferences where um, practitioners and academics talk about these issues. And it's a it's a classic Oxford um, model of kind of multidisciplinary. You know, bringing together 
different professionals and academics of, with different perspectives to, to sort of talk about this. So it's a, it's a, I, I would highly recommend um, people who are interested in these topics, check it out. They have good programs. A lot of it's virtual um, right now. And I think maybe, you know, going forward, I think they've recognized the value of doing some of this virtual so you don't have to be in Oxford to participate. Um, and it's, it's, it's pretty cool stuff. I think there's some interesting research out there. Um, I'm hoping to delve deeper. I'm hoping to figure out a way to, um, you know, collaborate and, and dig deeper into this stuff because it's super interesting to me. Uh, David, I'd like to turn now to more some of the social aspects that you've been experiencing in Oxford. Uh, how have uh, have your classmates continued to be this the amazing set of folks you met uh, uh, when you started? Uh, what have you found out or found kind of socially to do? Uh, what are the pubs like? Um, any rowing or things that we typically associate with Oxford? Yeah, so it's been real. I mean, and and I think I've mentioned I mentioned this in every podcast, and I'll mention it in this one too because it's it's the sort of the core truth to this whole experience the the value is so much in the people um and and i have been continue to be impressed by my classmates who you know it's been it's been nice now we've had um we've had five modules and we've been together more and more people as, as the covid restrictions have been lifted more and more people are coming um to oxford uh, and, and spending the week uh, rather than being online, which has been great. Um, I, think la- I think the last module we were, um, you know, we were probably at close to three quarters um, of the class was, was there in person, which makes a huge difference. Um, so getting to know people better, getting, you know, to have more social time to, you know, hear about them, hear about their histories, hear about their, you know, their, their businesses, their business interests um, has, been, has been amazing. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing I would say just on the people front is the faculty um, have been great. And they're accessible, they're open, they're, I, I think, very interested, um, or at least they act like they're <laughs> interested in, in, in the EMBAs. Um, I think particularly because we all come with professional interests and professional um, lives that are, are, are already pretty fully developed. Um, and so... Um, I found the interaction to be really kind of terrific um, uh, in terms of, you know, figuring out ways to kind of meld the research and the academic piece into the into the reality of my practice or you know my colleagues and some of their 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 more traditional business interests. So that's been great. Um, that's been great. I I've also had um, an opportunity to to do a little bit more of Oxford um, the last couple of times that I've. Um, I've been there. Um, I finally went to, you know, the Radcliffe camera. I was able to study um, uh, a little bit in the Radcliffe camera, which is the, you know, the the picture of Oxford. You know, the, it's the building that everybody uses is the picture of Oxford, um, which was pretty cool. Um, the Bodleian Library is amazing. I don't know, Tom, if you've ever been to the Duke Humphreys um, reading room, which is sort of the oldest, most ornate part of the library if you haven't done it you should go it's it's really really amazing it just you you feel like 20 percent smarter just by <laughs> just by walking in walking into the place um so that's been that's been great um the oxford union i am a member of i'm i'm really looking forward to being able to participate in um one of the debates i haven't yet 
Um, but I've, I've been able to visit the Oxford Union and I've been to the bar and um, hung, out, um, hung out there a couple of times. So that's really cool. Um, I have found a favorite pub. Um, it's called the Rickety Press in, um, in Jericho, which, I, which is not far from where I stay um, in Oxford. And it's a, it's, a, it's a great place with really good food. Recommend that as well. Um, what else? So spending some time at my college, you know, we talked about this, I think, in the first um, podcast. I'm a Keeble College member. Part of what is, um, you know, part of the value to me of this program is how Oxford, you know, sort of has this matrix uh, system where you're part of a, part of a, you know, the university, part of a school of business, but also um, a member of a college. Um, and Keeble's been um, really great, uh, gives me a place to stay. Um, I eat breakfast a couple of times a module in the in the classic you know dining hall, which is spectacular and inspiring. I study in the library, which is spectacular and inspiring. So that's been cool. Um, and yeah, we have been rowing. So one of my classmates, Matthew, is thanks has has really like um, uh, taken the, the 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 bull by the horns and has effectively created an EMBA rowing club um so we've been i've been out twice um with with our our cohort i think as the weather warms up we're going to be able to get out a little bit more often um we row in the thames it's it's amazing it's it's really hard um you know i i we're, we're in these eight person boats um and you know getting the timing right <laughs> And, 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 you know, kind of keeping the boat moving in the right direction together is much, much harder than I ever thought it would be. But it's a, it's a lot of fun, and um, we've really enjoyed it. So those are some of the things that, um, some of the fun things I've been, I've been um, able to experience. Well, David, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode. But before we go, I was wondering if you might be able to give our listeners just a tease of uh, what you might uh, be studying now that we can talk about in our next episode. Yeah, so so my my last course, um, which I'm still sort of processing um, and and working on our on the assessment on, was a really um, interesting uh, subject called global rules of the game, and again, sort of fits right within my my core interest. A lot of it was sort of on globalization, emerging markets, um, how. Um, non-market forces affect business strategy um, globally and, and, and working on ways um, that, uh, you know, you can develop non-market strategies to help, you know, improve your positioning and your competitive advantage. So that, I, I, hope, I hope we can dig into that um, in a little bit more detail next time because uh, it's pretty, pretty interesting stuff. Uh, and then our, our, right, our next class is right now we're halfway through strategy, which also is very interesting. I really like. And in March, we start accounting, which, um, you know, I'm, I have to say I'm, I'm a little anxious about. Not, not my wheelhouse at all. Uh, and, um, you know, less, um, less obviously exciting to me than some of the other things. But it'll be good. Stuff to learn. I mean, I... I, I, I Part of my goal in doing this is to, you know, fill in some of the holes in my experience, and that is definitely one of the holes in my experience. 
Well, David, as always, this has been great. I feel like I, I've been able to participate a little bit in uh, your adventure, and I'm sure many of our listeners feel the same way. I can't wait till uh, we get together uh, in the next quarter or so to find out uh, your next series of adventures. So until then, uh, look forward to the next time. Thanks. Looking forward to it. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of A Yank at Oxford with David Simon, where we detail his journey in getting an MBA at Oxford. There's a couple of podcast series I'd like to highlight for you. The first one is The Trial of the Century, the Enron Trial, where with Lauren Steffi, who actually covered the trial as a business columnist for the Houston Chronicle, we detail what happened at the Enron Trial. It's not an exploration of the bankruptcy and demise of Enron. It's focuses on the trial. It's a great series, and I know you will enjoy it. That is on the Compliance Podcast Network. Also coming up, Taxman on the intersection of tax and compliance. In this series, I explore with tax expert Tracy Howe what's the role of tax in compliance and what's the role of compliance in tax. Turns out there's a lot more integration than most compliance officers are, are aware of. So if you are interested in this intersection of tax and compliance, check out Taxman on the Compliance Podcast Network. It premieres on Monday, March 14th. Finally, if you've ever wanted to start a podcast or have an idea for a podcast, please give me a call. I'd love to visit with you and see if I can get you on the Compliance Podcast Network. A Yank in Oxford is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.